0: Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. So we are continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah this morning. First of all, who all was here last week with, with Steve? So was a different kind of church, right? (laughs) But I I think it was a good kind of different kind of church. Sometimes, let's be honest, first of all, it's good just to have a break from me, and so that's nice (laughs) that you don't have to listen to me all the time, but also to kind of have a little more interaction, a little more uh, time to kind of... Understand what it is that the the Holy Spirit is doing, and and I think it, that that was an awesome time. And I, I first of all just love Steve as you know a person, but also as a, a brother in Christ. And um, I knew he was gonna just bring amazing things, so I, I was super pleased that you guys got to have that opportunity. Um, but this morning we're gonna continue our study into uh, the book of Nehemiah. We're gonna work through chapter ten, and. This morning, the, the, there's a, kind of this topic that doesn't get, get talked about a lot at church. It doesn't get preached a lot at church unless there's a, a building project that they're trying to kick off or unless we need to like, get, get some funds going for a, a specific event or, or ministry. Because um, we're talking about generosity, And normally, after a pastor preaches on generosity, that's when, maybe that Sunday, the pastor decides to keep the offering plate until after the preaching time, and then he passes it around, and maybe we'll get a little bit more, right? Um, No. That is not the point here today. And so I want to be clear. This is we don't have any major you know building project that, that is in need of funds. We, we do have a building project, but it's not in need of funds. Um, we, we are not coming here because we're trying to drum up money. That's not what this is about. But it is important for us as followers of Christ to consider generosity. And what happens when we as followers of Christ, come together? as God's people in God's place experiencing God's presence when we come together and we give together what what does that look like the the first half of the book of Nehemiah if we we're going to like put a line down the center. The first half has to do with rebuilding the wall around the city. And what's interesting, and I hadn't really considered it, is the second half of Nehemiah has very little to do with rebuilding the wall and everything to do with rebuilding the people inside of it. It it has everything to do with taking this people group that has been outside of the land that God had promised them. And it, it, it's bringing them back and reminding them who they are, what their identity is as children of God. What does it mean to be a people of God? that That's what this second half of the book of Nehemiah means. And, and so as we start looking at it, we start kind of having this question that should come up within us of what does it mean for me to be a child of God? If we are people of God, and we're going to see this when we look at the scripture this morning, but if we are people of God, if we are the people of God, then there needs to be something that sets us apart. And that's what the, the people of Israel started to understand. That's what the, the, the Israelite nation started to, to recognize was that if we are going to live in this city that has been rebuilt, if we are going to, to put ourselves out there as being God's chosen people, there has to be something that makes us look different than the person down the street. the people realized that they had been called to live a life of generosity where God doesn't get the leftovers. God gets the first fruit. God gets the best. And that was one of the things that set the people of God apart. As you read through the the first 27 verses in the book of Nehemiah, we have yet another (laughs) list of names. I'm not going to read them all to you today. (laughs) Everybody says, oh, man. Um, 1 through 27, we have this list of names. And as you read through this list, you're going to see some names that maybe are a little familiar. You see Nehemiah is listed in this list. You see a guy named Mordecai who's listed in this list. And you're like, hmm, is that the same Mordecai? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is, actually, <laughs> that that we know from the book of Esther. So we have these different names that are coming out in this list, and it's talking about the people that have contributed to accomplishing God's work in the city. And so, as you read through this list, there may be a couple of names that we recognize, but by and large, they are complete nobodies. Like, no one cares who they, who they are. We, we, we have no idea. We, there's, there's no historical information about these people, most of them, except for the fact that their name just showed up in this list. And yet the action of them giving was enough for them to have a place in the word of God. Just consider that for a minute. The act of generosity that they demonstrated was enough to have their name recorded. Not just for like, Oh yeah, that's like in some dusty book that no one else ever looked at. It's recorded for essentially all of humankind to see. Huh. So there's no wasted pages in the Bible. We have no idea who these people are, but God placed... Such a high value on generosity that he recorded these people's names. Here we have a list of people who are making a commitment. And maybe the question is, you know, why why is there such an importance on on listing names? Like, why, why do we care? Why is this so relevant? And if you stop and pause for just a moment... Don't we make a big deal about who signed the Declaration of Independence? We make a big deal out of who signs a specific peace treaty or who signs a specific accord between two nations. And we, we also tell stories about the people who, who signed these specific documents. Names matter. Your name matters to you, Right? The commitments that you make with your name matter to you. They should. And when someone is telling your story, don't they use your name to tell your story? If we pause for just a second and you look back at the the book of Nehemiah as a whole, we look at the entire book, you see just how many times lists of names are are grouped together and included in Nehemiah. And there's something that we're going to learn here. The first list that we see is Nehemiah chapter 3. It's the list of the people who came and built the wall. And then in Nehemiah uh, 7, we see a list of the tribes and the families who returned to Jerusalem in the first wave, a century before Nehemiah showed up. And then, if we look at Nehemiah eight, we have a list of the leaders and the Levites who stood with Ezra and translated for Ezra when he was uh, proclaiming uh, the the books of the law. And then in Nehemiah ten, we have the leaders and the Levites and the priests who who signed this document, saying that they're going to uh, going to follow the specific things that will set them apart and and make them a nation chosen by God. And then. In Nehemiah 11, we see the people, the 1 in 10, who are, are settled in Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 12, we have the priests and the Levites who came in, uh, the first wave, and, and then uh, subsequent generations afterwards. And then further in Nehemiah 12, we have a list of leaders and priests and Levites who led the dedication of the wall. So in each of these sections, we have these lists of all of these different names that, that you and I look at and say, yeah, wait, okay, these are just a bunch of hard to pronounce names. Why, why do we care? Why is this relevant? How, what, what is the point here? What are we supposed to get out of this? We see names listed of people who do the hard work and who take the big risks. That, that's what we see here first, right? The, the building teams, the Jerusalem residents, the leaders signing on the dotted line, the first returners, it's the important sacrifices that have to be acknowledged. That's, that's important enough to say, yeah, this needs to be remembered. But it, Nehemiah also lists the people who have to take responsibility, The leaders in chapter 11 who say that that they're going to obey, they're going to do what they they say that they're going to do. There's a level of accountability that exists when you sign at the end of the the bottom line saying, I agree to this contract. I promise that we're going to do this. And my word is my bond. This is my commitment that we are going to do it. And finally, we have this list of lineages that exist for the religious leaders where the priests and Levites have to have a clear connection back to Aaron and subsequently to Levi. They have to keep close track of those connections. Regularly recording down genealogies, names, so that the people could be sure that those who were teaching the law We're living the law. And what's interesting to note is in all of this focus on names, in all of this focus on genealogies, the one person we don't know any genealogy or lineage about is Nehemiah. (laughs) But what we see here is that God's people are recognized. They're recognized in the first 27 verses, but in the verses following, there are the specific actions that show why they are being recognized. God's people should be recognized by their beliefs and their behaviors. If somebody's a sports fan of a specific team, there are typically ways that you're going to know if they're a sports fan, right? Maybe some of you guys have somebody like this in your life where, like, you walk into their living room and, like, everything is gold and red. And, like, they have, like, the 49ers blanket on the couch and, like, every shelf is covered in, like, football memorabilia. And, like, it's like, man, I, I, so you like the Cowboys? like <laughs> I don't know, does anybody have somebody that comes to mind when we think of, like, okay, they are a, a died in the wool this-sports-team fan? Maybe not to that extent, but, uh, you know, somebody's a part of the Raider Nation, potentially, I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's true, Colton and his Red Sox, yes. Well, and I know the, the obsession was uh, hereditary, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I'm trying to, we don't really have... We, we, we don't sports. <laughs> uh, we, we do individual uh, pain sports. We don't do, like, team sports. Uh, <laughs> but you know. You know when somebody is a 49ers fan that they're excited, and they'll let you know they're excited. And I know this seems a little obvious, but... Shouldn't people know when they look at me that I'm a follower of Christ? Shouldn't it be just like that? Shouldn't it be like I've got the the like Jesus like blanket on my couch when people walk in? It's like every shelf I'm just totally joking, okay? Don't <laughs> <laughs> every interior decorator in here is like, Matt, what are you doing? Um, but like, shouldn't it be that there should be things in my life that say, man, there, there is something different. There's something that sets Matt apart that says he's he has a different focus than everyone else, and I don't know what it is. It, it's Jesus. In the, the next section, we're going to see that there's some specific points that that the people of Israel found saying, hey, these are the things that we need to focus on. These are the things that we think are relevant that will set us apart from the surrounding nations. So starting at verse 28, it says, the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, the gatekeepers, musicians, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand all these now join their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all of the commands, regulations, decrees of the Lord, our Lord. So the people are coming together and they are signing a covenant, a contractor, an agreement saying that they are going to go back and keep the original agreement that God made with the people originally. When, when God chose them as a people, he said, he, God made a promise. He made a covenant with them. And now the people are coming back saying, hey, we messed up before. <laughs> we had that whole 70 years in, in Babylon thing. We had, but we're back now and we're ready to, to mean business. We are here to live out what it means to be the people of God. So starting at verse 30, it says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Now, sidebar, this verse specifically, I've seen this verse used, and I wish I could say it was just like Civil War times. I've seen this used like yesterday. Yesterday to explain why this is the biblical reason why there shouldn't be interracial marriage. That is not what we're talking about today, okay? And if you try to use that as a, as a topic, come see me and we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> that is not what this is saying at all. Because we just read that section that said, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. What that is, is that's everyone else who wasn't biologically part of the Israelite nation saying, hey, we want in. We want to be a child of God too. Come on in. And they got to join the club. That, that was how it worked. There, there was inclusion of people that chose to become part of the, the people of Israel. There was opportunity to do that. So this isn't about saying, hey, you know, a, a white person and a black person shouldn't get married. That's not what this is talking about at all. What this is saying is we're not going to give our children to marriage to people that are sacrificing their children to a false God. That's what this is about. So let's get that super, super, super clear. (laughs) This is a promise that we are going to set up our children in the way that they should go so that they don't make the same mistakes that we made. Because if you look back, if you look back at the the history of the people of Israel, when did everything start falling apart for the people of Israel? So we had David. David was, was doing okay, but he made some mistakes when it came to Uh, his spouse choices or spouse stealing, we will say. And he made those mistakes later on in his life. Eventually he died, he had a child, and he had a son named Solomon. And there was a very specific instruction that he gave to his son Solomon. It had to do with who he should marry. Solomon didn't listen to that instruction. And Solomon wound up marrying a whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different countries, and all of these different nations brought with them all of their cultural beliefs, all of their religious viewpoints, all of their false gods into his house, into the house of Israel, and everything started to fall apart from there. And if we follow that forward, we see king after king after king after king, making those same decisions, falling into those same traps, creating the same problems, and if we fast forward all the way to today, if I'm a believer in Christ and I choose to marry somebody that is compl- not just not a believer in Christ, but somebody who has a completely opposite antithetical viewpoint to Christ, how healthy is that? So what this promise is, is that we are not going to allow our children to make the same mistakes. And Spoiler, they're going to. But it's it's that commitment that says, as far as it depends on me, th- this is the commitment that I'm making. This is the promise that I'm making. And in that culture, they had arranged marriage. And so in that particular case, they did get to have a little bit more say in the in the process than we do today, right? So Israel's kings, they, they've made the same, those mistakes. And so these people are saying, we're going to not allow that to happen. And then we come forward to verse 31, where they're saying, we vow to not allow the surrounding cultures to influence how we spend our time. Well, that seems Kind of odd, like, why is that all of a sudden a focus? It's a focus because there was a specific portion of the law that talked about Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest that had largely been forgotten by the people of Israel. That, that This was one of those things when Ezra is up on the platform reading, the people are, are hearing the instruction from Ezra, and they're like, oh no, we've messed up. We didn't even realize And so what it says in in verse 31, they're talking about, um, basically, if the neighboring nations come to sell on the Sabbath day, we're going to tell them no. (laughs) If the neighboring nations come and and try to to celebrate with us on a Sabbath day, we're going to tell them no. We're going to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? That's the uh, fourth commandment. We had a, a conversation in the adult Bible, uh, Bible study at Sunday school two weeks, uh, two weeks ago where we were talking about the importance of rest, the importance of Sabbath. And I mean, it, really, this comes all the way back to the book of Genesis where God created the heavens and the earth, and God created everything in the earth. And on that seventh day, God rests. Probably not because he was tired. <laughs> Probably not because he needed a break. Probably not because he was like, man, that really took it out of me. No, there, there was something else. There was something to be gained in the rest. And it, it was just as important as the act of Creation. And I think sometimes what happens when we think about taking rest is we, we think it's an absence of work, right? And so it's, it's I'm just doing less than, but what, what happens is it's not less than. There's, in terms of level of importance, the, the Sabbath rest that took place on the seventh day, as far as God is concerned, is equal in importance to all of the work that was done on the other days. And so if if that level of importance exists now take that level of importance and apply that to your rest and I'm not just talking about your Saturday okay let's let's try to get a little bit more beyond than just talking about a Saturday let's let's think about the things in which you find rest where do, where do you find rest and you know I get to cheat a little bit because since I do have sport that I'm training for, I literally just have a rest day. <laughs> and so that helps me kind of find that specific uh, example a little bit easier. The importance and the value of that rest day is just as important as the effort and energy that I'm putting in on, say, yesterday, because without that, I will injure myself. Without having that time for my muscles to rebuild, for my body to to come back, I will be hurt the next time I go out and try and and exercise or do the things that I want to do. So God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired. He was resting on the seventh day because he was setting an example for how we should live. And so the people are saying, we're going to honor the Sabbath rest for ourselves. We're going to honor that in our lives. But we are also going to honor the Sabbath rest of the land. And this is the one where all of a sudden it gets to be a much more, much larger faith commitment. We're saying that while all of the other nations around us are going to make a choice to just continually harvest the, the land. They're going to continue to plant in the land. They're going to just grow their crops like they normally would. We're going to have a year that is set aside where every year we choose not to grow anything. Can I just tell you from a business standpoint, that, that is not a winning scenario. That is not a winning strategy. That is not how you make money. So yeah, we're going to take these like 10 years and we're just going to get rid of one. We, we don't need that year. And yet what God is is saying actually makes a lot of sense scientifically. (laughs) Shocker that God knows what he's talking about. Um, And God, God was able to use those seasons where the land wasn't planted to remind the people of his blessing all of the other years before Say, see how I have been faithful in those times where you planted. I can be faithful in the times that you aren't planting either. The people of God can't have their schedules dictated by the world. We cannot have our schedules dictated by what the world says is important. This is as a... It almost feels hypocritical to stand up here and say that to you right now. Can I just be honest? <laughs> with how crazy our schedules are, as far as the things that Kaylee and I do, and I'm going to say I, but Kaylee a lot, <laughs> with our kids, with the, the different things that we have in our lives, and you guys, are we're all the same way. We have to look at the things that we are taking into our lives and say, are these things being dictated to me by the outside world, and are these or are these things actually relevant to what it means to be a follower of Christ? And sometimes there are going to be needs for us to to look at the schedules, look at the things that we have taken into our lives, and say, is this actually something that I should be doing, or is this something that needs to be pruned so that I can actually grow in what it is that God's calling me to grow in. So the people of God can't have their schedules dictated by the world, but the people of God also can't have their provision dictated by the world. I can't do this thing because I I need to make this particular amount of money, I need to be able to, to have this in order to be able to pay for this particular subscription or this service or this whatever, and without these things, then then I can't survive, I can't live. So this, this group of people, this list of names that we see in Nehemiah chapter 10, they vowed to contribute financially to the work of the temple. They said, we're going to come together. We're going to sign on the dotted line saying that we are going to give so that everyone could experience coming back to to a place with God, coming back to a peace with God. And that's in, in verses 32 through 39. They're talking about how everyone comes together and gives. And when they all come together and give, then the people as a whole are able to prosper. So what does this mean for us today as we come to wrap it up here. So first off there has to be something that sets me apart. There has to be something where where people look at us as followers of Christ and say there's something different. We cannot have anonymous Christianity. So that's my, my association. There has to be something that associates me to, uh, to being a Christ follower. But then my relationships. I cannot walk with God if my closest relationships are going in the complete opposite direction. My time. If my schedule doesn't prioritize the things of God, it's because that there's something else. That is. Is there something else taking that priority? And finally, my finances. If I give my finances, if I sacrifice my finances on the altar to God, he will use them. He will use his economy to grow, multiply, and see his kingdom come. And the amazing thing when that happens is that in the midst of that, there is always enough. There will never be a time where, when we are are giving freely, that God leaves us wanting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your, people. I thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that as we go from this place into the coming week, that you would continue to speak to us, that you would show us how to live a life that is set apart, how to live a life that, that others recognize as being different. God, we want to live for you. We want others to to see our lives as a testimony that points back to you. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop.